Hello, church. My name is Flora, and we will now be reading today's passage from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Please follow along in your own Bible or the screen. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that she was, he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the reading of God's word. All right, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to True North Church. Uh, for those that are new or visiting or online, uh, if it's your first time, my name is Jam, one of the pastoral staff here, and I'll be sharing with you uh, just the story of Moses and how it fits into the story of redemption. Now, uh, before I go into that, I do want to share a little story of, um, well, I, I did a little story, uh, study on the book of Exodus back when I was seminary, and I read this book, and the author was describing just a story that he read or uh, experienced, uh, and this is a story about how he was at a church, and the, um, it was at a historical black church, and the young preacher that was preaching at the time uh, was more of a uh, progressive liberal th uh, theologian, and he was giving a story, and he was talking about the Exodus and the uh, events in described in Exodus, especially with the 10 plagues and some of the events that sound a little bit more uh, you know, like fantasy, and uh, he was describing it more uh, as like, hey, saying, hey, the book of Exodus is more of a mythology, or it's, it's more of a way analogy for people of Israel to learn about uh, just you know, certain truths that they wanted to describe to their gen uh, future generations, and then he gets to a certain point where he's talking about how um, God led the people of Israel through the Red Sea, and out in the crowd uh, was a, a, a older woman, and she, just, she said, hallelujah, that God was able to part the Red Sea and um, you know, make a path for his people. Right? And the young theologian, pastor, he kind of felt obliged to respond to her. He's like, hey, well, actually, did you know that a lot of historians believe that it was not the Red Sea? that the Israelites did not cross a, a vast sea, but it was actually the Sea of Reeds, which is a marshland about five inches deep. And without a beat, the, the older lady uh, exclaimed, hallelujah to the God Almighty, that he has the power to drown a whole army in five inches of water. <laughs> now, the reason why I bring this story up is because oftentimes, um, especially in our culture, in our day and age, we are very quick to dismiss the stories of scripture uh, and, and then therefore dismiss uh, the rest of the Bible. And oftentimes we have this understanding or we have this belief that in our current cultural lens that we own, like the, the, we are the most evolved in our education, right? And when we think about how we see things that happened or are described in the past, we see it through our current lens and say, oh, that all, all the things that they are describing must not have happened because it doesn't make sense in our day and age. 
right? And if you think about it, it's a very narrow-minded way of viewing things and a very narrow-minded way of, of viewing uh, the history of the world that happened many thousands of years ago. Like, who are we to say that that could not have happened thousands of years ago? I don't know, right? And, and I think oftentimes when we get to a point or as part of the scripture, especially in the book of Exodus, which is a very famous passage, a very famous story with a lot of... Um, uh, a very fantastic stories and, and things that sound unbelievable, it's very easy, especially for the skeptic or for someone who might not be uh, you know, re- really ready to believe what the words of Scripture are saying, that we're, you know, we're going to throw out all of it because this doesn't make sense scientifically. Right? And, and the reason why I bring this up is because I believe that even though some things may not make sense for us, um, that it doesn't discount the truth that is relayed in Scripture. And number one, the Bible was not meant to be written as a scientific book. Right? Imagine someone from 4,000 years ago, if they opened up a chemistry book in our day, they'd be like, what the heck, this is bogus, right? They wouldn't believe it either. In that same way, I believe if we think about um, what is described here in scripture, again, it's not meant to tell us uh, science. It's meant to tell us the story of redemption through Jesus Christ. And so therefore, therefore, looking at some of these things, we should not dismiss the rest of it if we do not agree with it, right? Um, especially like the 10 plagues. But if you are kind of wondering, here's one of the theories that I have, not I have, that I've read about the possibility of the 10 plagues, all right? And this is what some theorize about what happened to the 10 plagues. Uh, some theorize that the Nile River turning into blood is not due to, was due to either a red algae bloom or a, a deposit of red clay that came in through the flooding of uh, other tributaries around it. And if it was the case that there was a red algae bloom or the red clay, if you guys ever look up pictures of a red algae bloom in small rivers, it, re- it literally turns into Kool-Aid. The river looks like it's red. Okay? And with a red algae bloom or uh, an influx of red clay, it would have killed all the marine life within that, within that river. Now, if that were the case, the conditions of the Nile River would mean that the only things that can flee it are amphibians, Right? And the natural predators of amphibians, like tadpoles, would be fish, which would all be dead. In the stagnant water, these frogs and tadpoles would thrive, and there would be an influx in the population of frogs, and yet they would also want to escape the river, so where would they go? They would go into the land. And because of the vast population of frogs that entered and that are in existence, um, it also creates an optimal environment for gnats and lice to breed in the river. Why? Because who are the predators of gnats and lice? And where they breed in rivers, frogs are all out of the river because they don't want to stay in that you know dirty water, right? And which leads to the spreading of disease, especially in livestock, right? And then also you know biting flies are are rampant because of the fact that they're able to breed without natural predators. And uh, we're lucky to live in California that our flies are just annoying and that they don't bite. If you live in other parts of like there's flies that bite. If you've ever gotten bitten by a fly, it, it's it's not a good feeling, okay? I got bitten by a fly in Brazil, and I was so mad. I was like, you're not supposed to bite. You're only supposed to be annoying. How dare you bite me, right? It was very painful. But because of that, it spread disease among the livestock. And if you imagine all these dead livestock everywhere, what would that do? It would spread disease to humans, causing boils, right? And then uh, a hail that's unrelated to the boils, but hail, a hailstorm comes and destroys vegetation. And uh, we saw hail. Was it last week we saw hail, right? In California, in the middle of March, there's hail, right? So... Is it far-fetched that there would be a hailstorm in Egypt? No. It causes the destruction of vegetation, right, which would create the optimal condition for locusts to come and swarm and eat the rest of the vegetation, right? And then there's, after that is darkness, right? Some historians, now this is not verified. 
Some historians believe that around the time of the 10 plagues is when there was a volcanic eruption in the Aegean Sea, I don't know how to pronounce it, around 1620 BC, which would have caused darkness in a, in a lot of parts of the world. You know, like, how can that? Only three years ago, or even here in the Bay Area, we were filled in darkness with smoke, right? So it's very possible. And then the death of every firstborn male. That is probably supernatural, <laughs> right? I'm just lucky that I'm not the firstborn male. I'd still be alive. Anyways, all that to say that the story is written in the book of the Exodus um, is not outside the realm of possibility, right? And even if you may not agree with the potential uh, believability of some of the things that are written in it, again, it, it's not meant to be a science book. It's meant to bring us back to the story of redemption that God has planned from the beginning of mankind. And we see this kind of unfold here in Genesis chapter 2 as Moses is born, right? And so we're going to look at the life of Moses. We're, gonna look, we're not going to look specifically at the events of the ten plagues or anything. I just brought that up because I think it's very important for us to, to understand the validity of Scripture. We're going to look at the life of Moses and really see how God's plan of redemption plays out through the life of an adopted child, a child adopted into royalty, who ends up being a murderer and a fugitive. So we're gonna see this, uh, through this story, the re uh, redemption, uh, story of redemption that there's no limits to God's grace. Then we're gonna look at how God's grace, if we live in the fullness of God's grace, how he really is able to defeat our shame. And lastly, we're gonna look at the ultimate fulfillment of, um, of, of Christ as he is the one who is our ultimate savior and redeemer. So first, the reach of God's grace has no limits. And I, I think about this, because when we think about God's grace, I mean, if, especially if you grew up in church or if you've been in church long enough, we talk about the grace of God and, and how it, it, it's vast and limitless. Um, and if you really think about um, our ability to extend grace, there's absolutely limits. Absolutely, right? There's certain things that we are unwilling to forgive in people. And there's certain things that we're unwilling to accept. Like for me personally, um, child molestation or sex, like sexual assault, like that, I, can't, I can't forgive that. Right? If anyone molested my child, I'll kill them. I'm willing to go to jail for that. It's, you know what I mean? And even in prison, there's a code of ethics. Like child molesters like, and, and rapists, they, they, they get, they'll, they'll, get, they'll get tortured there. Right? Even amongst criminals, there is a code of ethics. Right? And, and so there's, when we think about, talk about grace, we have to understand that it is almost unimaginable for us as human beings to, to, to picture a grace that has no limits that God is willing to forgive and accept anyone despite their background, despite their sin, despite uh, the condition that they are in, as long as they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And we see this really play out in the life of Moses. Because number one, we see God's grace and his fingerprints even from the very beginning of Moses' life. Uh, in the book of Exodus, there is an edict that is given out by the king of Egypt that every male child born of the Hebrews or the Israelites must be killed. And again, this brings us back to this, this, this idea of the line of the seed of the woman versus the, the line of the seed of the serpent, right? The seed of the serpent, their desire is to make sure that the seed of the woman does not come to, to fruition. So what do they do? They're trying to kill every child from the seed of the woman, right? And the, the, you know, the people of Egypt, we learned last week that they're descendants of who? Descendants of Ham. Right? Ham is of the line of the sea of the serpent. And here we are, the king of, king of Egypt, the most powerful man in the world at that time, 
saying every Hebrew child that is born must be killed, every male Hebrew child. And by God's grace, what do the midwife, the Egyptian midwives do? They do not follow that rule and command. Instead, they come up with a, a, a lie. They say, hey, you know what? We, we try to kill them, but you know, it, it, Israelite women, they're built different. By the time we get there, they've already given birth and they're already hiding their kids. Okay? Uh, and, and so these children are set, they're made to live and Moses is not killed. He is born and his mom hides him for three months. When, he is no, when she is no longer able to hide uh, her child any longer, because, you know, like, if, you've ever, if you have infants, like, by the time they're three months, I mean, they're always crying. He's probably loud, right? And they're like, oh, we can't hide him. They're going to know that we have a baby. So what do they do? She puts him in a basket and puts him into a river. Now, what does that remind you of? It's, it's really this, it should remind the reader the story of Noah, the idea that Noah and his family are saved by being placed in an ark as they are surrounded by water. And here Moses is being saved in that same way. He is sent down the river, and it says that his older sister, Miriam, is like, you know, like, if you, if you were an older sister ever and you had a little baby brother, like, you, you might love him, and you're like, I want to make sure that he's safe. So she's falling along in the river, making sure that Moses is safe, and it comes to a point where he, he's uh, found by Pharaoh's daughter as she's bathing in the river. She opens up the basket, and she realizes that this is a child of an Israelite because he is circumcised, right? And as... And what does Miriam do? She, she, like, she like comes out of the bushes like, oh, I know a Hebrew woman that could nurse this child for you. Would you want me to get her? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, do that. So she, what is she, she takes her to her, her mom, Moses' mom. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, I will pay you wages for you to nurse this child. Like, parents, how awesome would it be if you got paid to raise your children, right? That would be my dream job. If I can have that job to get paid to raise my children, that would be awesome. And think about it, this is all being, being played out by God's grace. Not only does he save Moses from death, not only does he save him as he is put into a river, a river filled with crocodiles, I'm assuming, right? And then he is found not by just a random person, but he's found by the Pharaoh's daughter herself. And then... I used to always think that, you know, Moses was just adopted by Pharaoh and then he grew up Egyptian. No, he actually grew up in his own home, being taught the history of redemption about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the covenant that God has, has given to him. And, and so here he is, Moses, identifying and understanding his identity as an Israelite. And yet, as he gets older, you know, because Pharaoh's daughter's like, I don't want to deal with, like, the infant ages. Like, bring him back to me when he's, like, easy to take care of, Right? And then he goes into Pharaoh's home as a grown child. So he's learned his history as an Israelite and the covenant that God has made with, with his people. And then he gets the privilege of growing up as royalty. You know, he's like kind of sent off to boarding school to, to learn all the things of education and science and, and medicine and all that. And he, and, and, and he grows up to be a, a young man. And this is where we see God's grace and his fingerprints all over the life of this child, right? At, at, at every instance, he is saved. And then as, you read, as the reader, you're like, okay, Moses is, he might be legit. He might be the dude. And then later on, we read <clears throat> that he encounters a, a, a taskmaster abusing one of the Israelites. So what does he do? He murders him. And you're like, oh, wait a second. His action doesn't remind me of the seat of the woman 
he reminds me of the seed of the serpent. Because who is the first murderer ever? Cain, who kills his brother Abel. And so we see this and we're like, okay, Moses, what's going on here? And then he tries to represent his people again and be like, hey, he sees two Israelites fighting. He's like, hey, guys, like, we shouldn't fight amongst each other. You know, like, he's, he thinks he's going to represent the people, right? And they're like, what are you going to do, murder me? He, he is appalled and scared at this. He is found out to be a murderer. He flees to Midian and becomes a shepherd. And for those that don't understand, in the Egyptian culture, the lowliest position that you can have is to be a shepherd. So here's Moses, who was once royalty, who had everything at the palm of his hands, is now a murderer like Cain, fleeing as a fugitive in the land of Midian, living as a shepherd. And then in chapter three, we have Moses encountering God as he sees a bush that is burned but not yet consumed. Now remember, guys, if you read the Bible as a story, you see themes just pop up over and over and over again. Because just last week, we talked about God coming down on earth as, as a torch, right? As he made the covenant with Abraham, he, he came down as, as a torch that went through the pieces of animals. And the presence of God is so terrifying that by God's grace, what did he do to Abraham? He put him into a deep sleep. And even while Abram was in a deep sleep, when the torch of God went through the two pieces of animals, he was filled with deep terror, but Moses, a fugitive, a murderer, sees a bush being burned but not consumed, goes to it, and the voice of the angel of God comes and says, Moses, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. This is a very important distinction here. Because he does not say, Moses, take off your sandals, for you are about to enter holy ground. He says, Moses, take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. Moses is already in the very presence of God, and yet just like the bush, he is not being consumed. Even though the very presence of God and his holiness should consume the sinful murderer, Moses is given access to the very presence of God and the words of God is coming to him. And when I think about that, because if I was an Israelite, if I was an Egyptian and I, and, you know, in my Egyptian social media tablet of, of stone and like hieroglyphics, if I was reading about the story of Moses and I was like, what the heck, this guy, he, he was adopted as Pharaoh's daughter and, or Pharaoh's son and, uh, or Pharaoh's daughter's son and he committed murder, like he deserves a death penalty. He deserves to be captured. Right? I would have had no grace for this man. And yet God calls him not only in forgiveness, but because he wants to use him in the most elevated position for the people of Israel to lead his people out of slavery, to go forth and speak to the most powerful human being at the time, Pharaoh, and demand that he release his entire workforce for nothing. And when you think about how far God's grace actually reaches, it really is amazing. And yet I think one of the things that is very difficult for us growing up 
or living as a Christian or going to church or listening to sermons or, you know, just understanding the verbiage. We talk about grace so often, and yet we are unwilling to extend the same type of grace God has given to us to those around us. Or we are unable to even extend that grace to ourselves. Because oftentimes, we have a limit and certain conditions on what we are willing to accept and forgive. There are certain things that we are willing to allow people to do and not do based on our culture, okay? It's, it's really based on our cultural upbringing and not really based on, like, on, on, on universal morality, okay? Because what's acceptable in, 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 in our country here may not be acceptable in other parts of the world, and yet we allow for that. And there's other things that we don't allow for that might be allowed in other parts of the world. So when we see Moses right away at the very beginning of this story, what we see is really the development and the truth of God's grace, which is contrary to what often I, I grew up believing that the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is the God of grace. No, God was the same all throughout. Fully willing to extend grace to people that didn't deserve it. Next, we see how God's grace really defeats and overcomes our shame. Because let's look at Moses. What, what is the thing that he is running away from? He's running away from shame, right? Um, he has brought great shame upon himself, his family, and to Pharaoh. He is a murderer. Therefore, he runs away to Midian. And yet, God calls him to take upon a very, very important position, and I think this idea of shame is something that we really need to think about and, and understand. And, and, and I'm not saying that I'm an expert. And in many ways, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, just communicating some thoughts that I have, but I think it's very important. Uh, so number one, shame is something that we feel and struggle with when we violate social norms that we truly believe in. Okay? Uh, so it's not just like, if I violate something that I don't believe in, I'm not going to feel ashamed about, ashamed about it. But if I violate a social norm that I truly believe in, then I'm going to be ashamed about it. Shame also is something that directs its focus inwardly uh, with a negative view of who we are. Right? It, it, it's, it's this idea of, like, I can't believe uh, I'm this type of person. You know? um, and, and the best way to know this is if you go to your Facebook memories and you see your old posts and you see what you put, you're like, oh, my gosh, did I post that? Because you're like, I'm so ashamed of who I am, you know, like when I was 30 years old, I put like, why would I post that? You know, and then you, you got to delete it, right? So um, experts say that shame is something that is experienced more powerfully in adolescence and in, in the elderly. Uh, this is true because uh, young adolescents are not yet fully developed in, in their character and in their identity. And young adolescents are surrounded by weird so social norms that they need to abide by, okay? So try to remember back when you were in middle school and high school, there were these weird social norms that, were, that made it acceptable or made you an outcast, right? And it changes per generation. And parents of like high school and middle school students, like, you're like, come on, just talk to me. What's going on? They're not going to talk to you because they know you don't understand. In the same way that when we were in middle school, high school, like, we're not going to talk to our parents because for some of us, there was a language barrier. But also, we're like, you're not going to understand. Like, you grew up in the 50s or 60s, right? 
And, and so they, they experience shame a lot. And, and a lot of times, especially if you add social media into the mix, in our generation for young adolescents, they have a very difficult time because there's so many, the societal norms are changing constantly for them. Uh, for, for the elderly, they also experience uh, shame more because of the fact that they start believing in the limitations of their body. Uh, they start uh, thinking about, they become more self-conscious about their age. And um, they said that in middle age, you experience the least amount of shame, you know, because you think, you know, it's, you're all that, you know, right? That's why, like, middle managers, you're like, what, you know, like, they're like 40 years old, what, they, think they're, they think they're everything, right? I'm at that age, by the way, so <laughs> I experienced very little shame. Ask my wife. Um, and I think one of the most important things that we need to really admit to and think about, especially in a Christian community, is that outwardly we talk very clearly about the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ takes away our shame. So if you grew up in the church, and if you have experienced Christian community or even just the doctrine of the gospel, uh, and I asked you questions, true and false questions, you would say, and I said, does the gospel and your identity in Christ take away all your shame? You'll be like, amen, hallelujah. And, and we'll talk about that and we'll use that verbiage. But our actions and our response to those that might be in sin are very contrary to what we actually describe and we talk about. And so there's this weird dichotomy, right? There's this weird relationship where we are all people coming together, wanting to live a life that is obedient and, and glorifying to God, yet we are also sinful people who are going to struggle with sin. We are sinful people who are not perfect. And we are called to extend grace to one another, and yet we are unwilling to extend grace on certain matters, and because we are people who experience shame, we are unwilling to talk about it or even uh, confess it. And there's also a huge difference between the way that Westerners experience shame and the way that Asians experience shame. Okay, there's an author by the name of Robert Nisbet. Um, uh, he authored a book titled The Geography of Thought, How Asians and Westerners Think Differently and Why. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but he explains that there are some key differences between the two cultures, especially on how they view shame. Okay. So in the Western culture, there's a greater emphasis on individualism and personal autonomy. So therefore, shame is a private emotion that is only felt by the individual. On the other hand, in the Asian culture, it's more of a communal and collective community. Therefore, shame is not experienced purely by the individual, but is also ex experienced or you feel that it's being experienced by your community, your family, the people that you have close relationship with. So in Asian cultures, there's this idea that it is a shame-honor-based culture. Now, for many of you, you grew up in both of those cultures. So it's a weird thing to navigate. So for me, this is a great way for me to explain something as an Asian American. I always wondered why as a pastor, okay, this is very specific, okay? As an Asian American pastor, why it was easier for me to support and platform white pastors on social media. But then when I see an Asian-American pastor trying to, uh, um, you know, like 
promote themselves or platform themselves. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And I realized because in my Asian Americanness, in my Western view of how I view uh, a, you know, culture, I realized, oh, this person being more Western, they're allowed to independently and auton autonomously seek out to platform themselves in this way. And it doesn't, it doesn't connect, it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. But as an Asian American, how dare he or she elevate herself without the communal approval of like, yeah, we want you to be our representative. And therefore, I'm more willing to share posts about this random, random pastor that I, I'm like, oh, this is good. Because for me, I look at them just independently and just their content. But then when I see an Asian American face pastor, I'm like, whoa, 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 who are you to do this? We didn't give you permission. In the same way, when we first started the church, I'd be like, hey guys, we are a church plant. You guys go and, and, and do things. Like I'm, I'm releasing you to start Bible studies, to go out and try ministries. And the ones that did were the, were, were the white ones. Right? The, the more Western ones. The Asian Americans that were coming to the church, they're like, ah, what do you mean? Until I was like, bring them up on stage. Here is our new Bible study person. You know? Then they felt empowered to do so because of the different cultures that we have. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the Bible comes from an Asian context. Right? The characters in the Bible, they're not, they're not white Europeans. They're not white Americans. They come from a more Asian culture background. And for Moses, what he was doing when he first tried to step in and tell the two Israelites not to fight was that he elevated himself to a position of authority amongst his group of people, even though they knew, hey, you're nothing but a murderer. You have no right to elevate yourself. And therefore, in shame, he runs away to Midian. Now, as God calls him into the position to lead his people to, out of slavery, he experiences and feels that shame and says, who am I? The people are going to reject me, God. Don't send me. And as believers that experience shame in either way, whichever context you're from, and if you're Asian American, you're probably like, I, I, I'm, I'm like schizophrenic. I experience it in both ways both individually and communally, I realize that the reason why it's so difficult for us to be vulnerable and people who confess sins to one another is because we feel that doing so will not only bring shame to ourselves, but to those around us. When um, people were being laid off from Google, uh, I looked at my LinkedIn and the things and the people that were sharing that they got laid off, they were all Western. I didn't see a single Asian person promoting that they got laid off from Google. Why? Because we don't do that, right? And in, a, in, a, in our church context, when we're thinking about how can we live fully in the grace of God where we are able to process our shame, because we all have shame, how are we able to process our shame in a biblical way is that we understand that confessing of sin is not just something that we do independently here, you know, here like silently to ourselves. It's not something that we are forcing everyone to do. You, like, hey, now we're gonna take turns, come up on stage and, and tell us your deepest, darkest secrets. No, it, it, it's something that we do in intimate settings where you talk to people that you have close relationships with and you confess your sins to them. 
I was looking at, you know, two main examples of people who I believed experienced deep sin, and yet God was able to forgive them and elevate them into positions of leadership. Peter, he denied Jesus three times. In my Western view of Christianity, I always assumed that someone in a leadership position, if they had sinned, that they would have to what? Come up with this huge statement, come up with, uh, you know, work with a, um, you know, a, 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 dang, I don't forget the word, the person who writes stuff in good ways, you know? And see, I'm not even ashamed of that. I didn't know that word. They come up here and then they'll say like, here I am, here are my sins and please forgive me, you know? And, like, and you're like, okay, oh, awesome, you know? Like that would never happen in, in, in my context. But in Peter and Jesus, what happens? In a campground by a lake, Jesus and Peter have an intimate conversation. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And there was that confession. You know I love you, Lord. Then feed my sheep. Now, eventually, it was made known to other people, but it was not something like where he was brought up to the front of everybody and, and he had to expose his, his sin and, you know, of, of denying Jesus. And with Apostle Paul and his, uh, and his conversion of the road to Damascus, I mean, he was a murderer. He killed Christians. He literally killed Christians. But the conversion happens, and then who does he confess his sins to? Ananias, one person, in an intimate setting, now, obviously, later, Apostle Paul, he confesses to a larger group, but this type of public confession happens in stages when this, once there's true repentance. Now, disciplinary, disciplinary matters is different. If you're caught in sin and you're unrepentant, yes, we have to make it public. And I think, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, because I believe that the, the discipline of confessing sins to one another is very important in the Christian life. And yet, in many of our lives in many of our contexts we don't do it because we are ashamed and especially if you grew up in an asian american context we were told and taught and it was modeled for us that you don't admit your wrongs you know how and for me specifically and in my context you know how my parents have never apologized to me but i know when they were wrong and i know that they were sorry because they changed their actions they never verbally said they're sorry, but they would change their actions, right? So like if my mom did something wrong to me and then, um, you know, I'm like upset, I'm a teenager, she would bring me food, eat, you know? And I'd be like, okay, I knew it, you know? Like, <laughs> I knew you were wrong, you know? Even, even, even for me and my wife, I still operate in that way, which upsets my wife tremendously, right? But if my wife, so I, I never say sorry to my wife, okay? I'll, Oh, no, but I say it in the Asian way, okay? I say, I'll change up, you know, I'll do things. My wife, she tries to apologize to me in Western ways. Like, I don't care about your sorry. Do something else, you know? It's a, I, I, it's, it's a cultural thing, right? It's a cultural thing. Because, and especially if you grew up in an Asian American context, the idea of exposing your sins and putting it out there is terrifying. Right? Asians don't have skeletons in their closets. They have an entire cemetery of generations and generations of skeletons that are never talked about. Right? My wife asked me about like my family and my family history. I go, I don't know. Like, what do you mean you don't know? I don't know, because my parents never told me anything. Right? But I did find out one. Well, I won't say that. Um, and all this to say is that when we think about 
that type of cultural background that you grew up in. And this idea of not being ashamed because the gospel has given us a completely new identity in Christ and the, the fullness of God's grace and its reaches that we should understand that practicing the discipline of confessing sins to one another is biblical and healthy. That not only does that reveal that we truly believe in the grace of God, but it also models for our community what it means to live in the fullness of God's grace. The opposite of that is also true. We are very unforgiving of those that confess their sins. We respond in very negative ways. I'm very guilty of this too, where sometimes people have told me things about, well, you shouldn't be telling me that. They're like, but you're my pastor, but I don't want to hear it. You know, and, and like, or, or people, you know, I'm, I would rather have someone confess their sins, especially if it's like a really like, like crazy sin. And then it's like, all right, let me tell you some churches you can start going to now, you know? Because that's a, you know, what, what do samurais do when they bring dishonor to their clan? They just kill themselves. And in many ways in the Christian community, we want our other, you know, we want fallen Christians to commit sep seppeku. Seppeku? Seppeku. You know, the, uh, this thing. Because more honorable to do that than to bring dishonor and shame into your community. And I think that's a very backward way of thinking when we talk about gospel of grace and how it alleviates shame and, and it gives us a new identity in Christ and yet we still operate in a way that's very contrary to gospel truths. And for Moses, um, and, and the reason why I bring this up is about shame is because I believe that Moses was experiencing a deep level of shame that maybe perhaps many of you have felt before. Uh, the consequence of sin does that. Right? Sin does bring shame into our lives. Right? Adam and Eve, when they ate, first ate of the forbidden fruit, their eyes were opened to their nakedness, and they were shamed. And when they heard the sound of God in the garden, what they do? They hid themselves from him. They understood in that moment that their act of disobedience brought dishonor to a holy God, and they could not stand face to face to him. And the story of Moses redeems that. Because it shows how God's grace extends even beyond the greatest shame in our lives. A man who was convicted of murder, a known fugitive, is now called, to God, called by God to lead his people to the promised land. We're literally looking at a fugitive and a convicted murderer becoming the most important person in the lives of Israelites at this moment. And a very integral character in the story of God's redemptive history. But Moses, uh, he doesn't just accept it right away, right? As he's speaking with God in the burning bush, in verse, chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He's like, who am I? God, don't you know who, what I did? I'm a murderer. And then in verse 13, he says, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He's basically like, dude, they're going to reject me. How, they're... Even if they believe that you sent me, like you need to give me some kind of stamp of approval. Tell me your name. And this is very important because God has never revealed his name up to this point. And then he tells Moses, tell them I am sent you. Moses like, what the heck? That's not a name, right? 
but in that statement, he's describing exactly who he is. I am who I am. The eternal God, the one that was the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is the God that is sending you to your people. And in chapter 4, he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Because he's like, how will they ever believe that you, Yahweh, would appear to a murderer like me? And this entire time, God is trying to break down the walls of shame in Moses' life. Saying, if you are able to stand on holy ground and not yet be consumed, it means that there is nothing to be ashamed of because I've taken it all away. Later on, Moses in Numbers chapter 20, he disobeys God again. He strikes the rock instead of telling the rock to bring forth water. And because of that, God says, you will not enter the promised land. Now, there's nothing more shameful than failure. Am I right? Come on, you guys all know. That's why we're all here, because you guys never failed before in your life. That's why you're in the Bay Area. There's nothing more shameful than failure. Here's Moses, who was called directly by God to lead his people into the promised land. There's redemption because of God's grace. We see that he becomes a fugitive, a murderer. Now he is the leader of God's people, the prophet and priest to his people. And then in disobedience, God tells him, you cannot enter the promised land. And guess what, Moses? You have to write about it and tell everyone about it for generations and generations and generations about your failure. So he does. He writes Numbers 20, talks about how he disobeyed God. He's not able to enter into the promised land. So we see that Moses is not the seed of the woman who would be the one to conquer completely our shame. And there's another. Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 uh, begins... And there's some very interesting characters there. Um, he is a descendant of Tamar. If you guys don't know who Tamar is, do I have enough time? I'll, really quick, okay? Judah, he has a son. His son marries a woman named Tamar. His son dies before Tamar has a child, okay? In Jewish law, um, if your husband dies, the duty of the husband is now given to his brother. So because having children is very important and necessary, right? So Tamar's husband dies. So Judah's other son has to marry Tamar. But he won't get her pregnant on purpose, okay, if you get my drift. And then he dies. And then Judah has another son, but he's very young. So Tamar's like, I need, I need my husband. And Judah's like, well, not yet. He's not old enough yet. And then, but Tamar knows Judah doesn't want to give his last son to Tamar because like all my sons are dying once they get, you know, marry you. Like it might be you, you know, I would be like that too, right? Like uh, no, no more, no more, no more sons to you. So what does she do? She dresses up like a prostitute, right? Seduces Judah and then has a child with him. That's Jesus' great, 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 great grandma, Okay. And it's all open to public. The next woman is Rahab. Guess what Rahab is? She didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute. And she was a Gentile. Not even in the line of Israel. Right? 
And then it talks about Solomon. And this is how the, uh, the genealogy in Matthew describes Solomon. Solomon, the son of David by the wife of Uriah. Just in that phrase alone, that's like the most, like, in your face, ba-dow, like, Solomon, the son of David by the wife of Uriah. Why? Because David murdered his own best friend because he got his best friend's wife pregnant so that he could marry her. You know what I mean? That's crazy, right? That's like, you can't even write, like, that's not a reality TV show. It's like, that's too fantastic, right? Fantastic in an unbelievable way, not like fantastic, awesome, fantastic, you know? And then Mary is a virgin who gives birth to a son, Jesus. And throughout the whole entire New Testament, the Pharisees always remind Jesus that he is the son of Mary, not the son of Joseph, because they believe that he is an illegitimate child. Jesus, all of this shame was put upon Jesus. And not only that, all of our shame was put upon him. And not only that, like we said two weeks ago, he hung naked for all the world to see upon the cross. He suffered at the hands of his very own creation to take our shame away. Our Savior went through all of that so that what? So that we can still hide behind our shame? No. So that we can live in the fullness of God's grace, understanding that even in our misgivings, even in our sins, even in our, uh, our failings, that we can have the full assurance that we are God's children. We need to practice that type of grace towards one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this time. God, I, I know that there are some things that I might have said that uh, might not have made sense or, or, or may have sounded a little weird or, or even things that even I myself, I'm, I'm still processing, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to think and process those things in a way that will glorify you and that would be a way for us to really minister to one another. Uh, God, and most importantly, Lord, um, make our community a place, a church, a body where we don't have to hide behind our shame that the response that we will have towards one another would be of grace, not of judgment, and that the lack or that shame would not have a power on us to, to hide and to, to, to have a mask on, but that we would be fully vulnerable, not only to you, but to one another as well. So we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray.